So welcome everyone to today's meeting of the London Aesthetics Forum here at the Institute of Philosophy. Uh, as ever, we're especially grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support and sponsorship of the forum. And we're delighted to have with us here today James Grant, who's a lecturer in philosophy at the Queen's College at Oxford, and who's going to be joining us here in London from October as a lecturer in philosophy at Birkbeck College. Uh, James works on a number of topics within aesthetics and the philosophy of language, especially at their intersection and also within ethics. His paper, Metaphor and Criticism, won the 2010 British Society of Aesthetics Essay Prize and was subsequently published in the British Journal of Aesthetics. Uh, and he also has a book forthcoming with Oxford University Press entitled The Critical Imagination. And the title of his topic today is The Aims of Art Criticism. James. Thank you very much. Um, I'd also like to thank London Aesthetics Forum for inviting me here today. Um, we appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, so the title of my topic is, the title of my paper is The Aims of Art Criticism. Uh, so criticism of the arts is a major part of our cultural life. Criticism in its various forms, reviews, academic criticism, uh, the kinds of comments you often find in museum catalogs, things like this. The critics decide to a large extent which films and plays get seen and which books get read. And criticism commonly affects our experience and our evaluation of paintings, music, poems, the urban environment, fashion, and much else besides. Philosophers and other theorists of the arts, however, have long disagreed about what the aim or aims of art criticism are. Some think the aim is to evaluate the work being criticized while others, disagreeing with this, claim that the aim that criticism has, or should have, is to explain or interpret the work, to describe it for us, or to modify our responses to it. And others take other views besides. Now, there are different ways of understanding this question of what the aims of art criticism are. I'm going to understand it as a question about what the constitutive aims of art criticism are. We can't assume in advance, of course, that our criticism does have a constitutive aim or aims. But if it does, it would be interesting to know what it is. So just as the constitutive aim of assertion is often said to be truth, it would be interesting to know if art criticism itself, that form of discourse, has a constitutive aim. So in this talk, I'm going to argue that art criticism does have a constitutive aim, one not previously recognized. Having this aim is part of what makes a remark or a piece of writing an instance of art criticism, in my view. Moreover, I'm going to claim that having this aim is a necessary condition of a remark or piece of writing being an instance of art criticism. So I'm going to begin the talk by considering a number of other views that have been presented about what the aim or aims of criticism are. Sometimes, I should say, these aims are explicitly presented as aims that all criticism has. Sometimes they are not presented that way, and often it's not entirely clear how much criticism the person who thinks this is an aim of some criticism holds it to be an aim of. I'm simply going to consider whether it's right to treat these suggestions as uh, identifying aims of all criticism whatsoever. And I'm going to argue that none of these five suggestions identifies an aim that all criticism has or ought to have. However, they all do reveal something important about what it is that critics do and 
uh, what they try to achieve, as do the counterexamples to them, as I hope to show. A good account of the aims of criticism should, ideally, account for the fact that critics often do the things identified by these other theories, uh, and why the counterexamples to them are counterexamples. So that's the plan. So the first view I'd like to consider is one supported by Monroe Beardsley. Beardsley holds that the aim of criticism is to help the critics' readers choose which artworks to experience. So as he writes, critics, in the strict sense, are those who set themselves up or are set up by others to make public judgments for the purpose of guiding the choices of others who are less qualified than they, perhaps less qualified by lack of experience or talent or time. So Beersley, I think, like the other suggestions I'm going to consider, has here identified one thing that we do read criticism for. Many reviews of books, films, music, and so on are written for the purpose of helping readers decide which books to read, which music to listen to, which films to watch. Indeed, critics sometimes make this aim explicit. So Virginia Woolf, for example, wrote an essay on the Fairy Queen, and she introduces her observations as remarks by one who wishes to urge others who may be hiding their yawns and their polite boredom to the same experience. Nevertheless, Beersley's view uh, is not an aim that all criticism has. For one thing, it's not a plausible account of a great deal of academic criticism, criticism written in English departments and other literature departments. Academic criticism is normally written for readers who have already chosen to experience the work. The critic presupposes that the reader is reading the criticism because they are already familiar with the work. So Beersley's model seems best suited to much journalistic criticism. Uh, but as we'll see in some of the other counterexamples I'm going to consider, a, there are counterexamples to other theories that are counterexamples to Beersley's view as well. The next view I'd like to consider is one that I think is a very natural one to take, and which has been defended in a recent book by Noel Carroll. So Carroll argues that the aim of criticism is to provide evaluations of the work, specifically reasoned evaluations. As he puts it, criticism necessarily or essentially requires evaluation. Notably, evaluation or appraisal grounded in reason and evidence. Critics are expected to supply reasons, indeed good reasons, in support of their evaluations. In Carroll's view, the point of other critical activities, such as interpretation, description, elucidation of various kinds, and so on, is to support an evaluation. Now, Carroll is well aware that often criticism does not contain explicit evaluation. He points out that often an evaluation can be implicit. And, as he puts it, it will often be unnecessary to round off one's description or interpretation with an explicit statement of the evaluation that it supports. Now, I don't wish to dispute the claim that a great deal of criticism provides evaluations, or the claim that a great deal provides support for those evaluations. However, I don't think that Carroll's view that this is an aim that all criticism has is right. 
For one thing, some criticism contains evaluation, but no support for it. Some criticism is very simple and rudimentary. There is a very fat volume called The Penguin Guide to Recorded Classical Music that is published uh, annually. And many entries in this rate recordings on the basis of one to five stars and might have a little sign uh, also saying that there's something special about it. Now, many of the entries elaborate upon these ratings and comments, but many of them simply leave it as it is. They just give it a rating from one to five stars and or mention whether there's something special about it. Now, this is very rudimentary. It's not very grand, but it seems to be criticism and to be none the worse for not containing any support for the evaluation. It would be problematic or bad criticism if the evaluation is wrong or implausible or if the critic who provided it was not herself justified in giving it the rating that she gives it. But it is not necessarily bad criticism if the critic does not state the evidence in support of the verdict. A reader of the Penguin Guide to Recorded Classical Music may be consulting it just to do exactly what Beardsley said we often read criticism for, to help her to choose which recordings to listen to. And uh, Carol's account, requiring as it does that there be support provided for an evaluation, does not account for these kinds of cases. A second counterexample to this view is it seems possible that and uh, there appear to be many actual instances of this, for there to be good criticism that provides no evaluation at all. So a convincing or plausible uh, explanation of why Hamlet procrastinated, it seems, could very well be good criticism, and none the worse for not containing either an explicit or an implicit evaluation. So it's for these reasons that I think the evaluation view, while again identifying something critics often do, is not adequate as an account of an aim of all criticism. The third view I'd like to consider is most closely associated with a famous paper by Arnold Eisenberg called Critical Communication. Eisenberg holds that, at least for a large class of descriptions provided by a critic, the aim of giving those descriptions <clears throat> is to cause the reader to perceive certain features of the work, to modify our response to the work in that sense, in that way. Now, in the longer version of this paper, in my book, I discuss Eisenberg's argument at much greater length. Here, I'm only going to give the barest uh, account of it. But Eisenberg's example is of a critic who is discussing an El Greco who writes that uh, the outline of the figures in the foreground forms a violently rising and falling wave. So he describes the contour as like a violently rising and falling wave. Eisenberg argues that it's not plausible to suppose, as one might pre-theoretically think, that this description is offered in support of a verdict. So the fact that these, the outline of these figures forms a violently rising and falling wave provides no support, in Eisenberg's view, in favor of a verdict. Rather, he thinks, the best explanation of the function of descriptions like this is to cause the reader to perceive, to direct the reader's attention to a certain feature of the work. 
or features of the work. As Eisenberg puts it, reading criticism otherwise than in the presence or with direct recollection of the objects discussed is a blank and senseless employment. Now, once again, I think there's uh, a lot of truth in this view. It's undeniable that critics often try to get us to perceive features of the work. Indeed, we don't need an argument like Eisenberg's to see that this is sometimes the case. Critics often provide reproductions of paintings that they discuss in their books in order to get us to look at those paintings. Or again, critics of literature will often quote passages from the work they're criticizing in order to get us to read the lines quoted. Nevertheless, this is not something that it can be plausibly maintained all criticism aims to do. And I think we can identify at least three kinds of counterexample here. So first, there's criticism that tries to cause beliefs and not perceptions. So much interpretation would be of this kind. So a critic might try and uh, persuade us that the governess in The Turn of the Screw actually did see ghosts, or again, that the character Ugolino in Dante's Inferno ate his own children, as is suggested in that poem. In cases like this, it could be simply the critic's aim to cause us to believe in their interpretation, or to believe that their interpretation is plausible. Second kind of counterexample is a review of a work that the critic's readers can no longer perceive, and which the critic knows their readers can no longer perceive. So one can criticize a theatrical production whose run has already finished. It is not, as Eisenberg implies, a blank and senseless employment to read about a theatrical production whose run has already finished, and which you can no longer perceive yourself. It might, in fact, be very interesting to know how the director adapted a play or what other artistic decisions were made in the course of it. A third counterexample. Negative reviews discouraging the reader from ever perceiving the work do not have the aim of causing the reader to perceive features of the work. Again, this is something that Eisenberg's view overlooks. The next view I'd like to consider is that the aim of criticism is to provide explanations of some kind. So some hold that providing explanations of various kinds is one aim or the aim of criticism. So in a recent paper, Arthur Danto has described criticism as a kind of education. And he writes that education in art is explaining how and why each good work, in his example, how and why each good artwork is good in its own way. In a similar vein, Frank Sibley writes, a critic frequently tries, as one of his central occupations, to say why a picture is unbalanced or what gives a complex work its grace, unity, or serenity. Critics certainly do explain facts like these and more besides. Some famous works of criticism are involved in trying to explain why a work leaves the impression that it does, or why it elicits the response that it does. So Thomas de Quincey has a famous essay called On the Knocking at the Gate in Macbeth, and he announces 
at the start, the purpose of his essay being to explain why the knocking at the gates that succeeds to the murder of Duncan has had a certain kind of effect on his feelings. Namely, he wants to explain why the knocking at the gates in Macbeth reflected back upon the murder a peculiar awfulness and a depth of solemnity. And the course of the essay, he tries to account for why it had this effect on him. So I think there's no doubt that explanation looms very large in criticism, an explanation of uh, more kinds of fact than Sibley and Danto identify. But once more, I think there are counterexamples to the claim, which incidentally Sibley at least does not make, that explanation is the aim of all criticism. So we can consider some of the ones that I've already presented. Criticism that simply provides unsupported verdicts, such as the Penguin Guide to Recorded Classical Music, uh, does not provide explanations of why the work rated is good or bad. Again, a critic might tell us what responses the work elicits or can elicit from a sensitive reader, but may not explain those responses, and may be none the worse for that. Again, criticism that tells us what is good or bad about a work, or tells us what aesthetic properties the work has, may or may not also explain why it's good or bad, or explain uh, why it has those aesthetic properties. So again, this view gets at an important truth, but doesn't cover all instances. So the final view I'd like to consider, I also think is a very natural one, and that is that the aim of criticism is to enable the reader to appreciate the work better than she could without having read the criticism. <clears throat> now, I think this is an important, there's something importantly right about this view. And I think that another interpretation of the question of what the aims of criticism are, it's right to say that aiding appreciation is an aim of criticism. Again, in the longer version of this paper, I defend the claim that if we understand the question of the aims of criticism as a question about what makes criticism good as criticism, we can say that aiding appreciation is an aim of criticism in that sense. So I think it's right to say that if criticism has the aim of aiding appreciation and is such as to aid appreciation, then that's one thing that makes it good as criticism. But on the understanding of the question that I've taken in this talk, I don't think it's right to say that aiding appreciation is an aim of criticism. It's not a constitutive aim of criticism. So some of the examples we've discussed provide counterexamples to this view as well. So criticism of works that the critic knows cannot be experienced anymore, such as production of a play whose run has finished, don't have, uh, such criticism doesn't have as its aim to enable the reader to appreciate the work better than they otherwise could. Or again, reviews that just provide information that is useful to someone trying to decide whether to experience the work may not provide information that enables the reader to appreciate the work better than she otherwise could. For instance, it might be very useful to know whether a certain work is terrifying or funny or cliched, disturbing, etc., 
when trying to decide whether to watch it. However, such information might be useless for the purpose of gaining a better appreciation of the work than you otherwise could. So if you are told in the review that the film is terrifying and you decide on that basis to watch it, you may be unable to miss the fact that it is terrifying. Having been told that may not enable you to appreciate it any better than you otherwise could. It may, of course, but not all criticism for reasons like this can be construed as having the goal of aiding appreciation. Okay, so it is, of course, perfectly possible that there is no aim that all criticism shares. Uh, and we certainly can't assume in advance that this is the case. However, if there is an aim that all criticism shares, it would be good if a statement of it made sense of the fact that critics do the things I've just pointed out that they often do. It should accommodate the truth in the five views that I've just mentioned and also avoid the counterexamples to them that I have identified. So I'm going to try and defend a view of the constitutive or a constitutive aim of criticism that satisfies these criteria. So I think there's something importantly right about the association between criticism and appreciation. And in summary, my view is that the aim of criticism, a constitutive aim of criticism, is to communicate facts of a certain kind about appreciation. Not necessarily to uh, enhance it or enable it uh, enable a reader to appreciate a work better, but to communicate facts of a certain kind that I will elaborate on about appreciation. But in order to say what kind of fact I think that is, I need to say a bit more about what I take appreciation to be. Now, the account I'm going to provide is by no means meant to be a full account of appreciation. And moreover, there are a number of other more specific claims one could make about appreciation that are compatible with what I'm going to say about it. I only want to establish that at least this much is true of appreciation. And to argue that if at least this much is true of appreciation, then it's plausible to suppose that a constitutive aim of criticism is to communicate facts of this kind about appreciation. Okay. So I think one thing we can say about appreciation of a work is that it requires awareness of the work's features by certain means rather than others. So appreciating a work is clearly not just a matter of knowing things about it. You could know a great deal about a work, and indeed a great deal about it that is relevant to appreciation, without actually ever having appreciated the work. So you could know, for example, that a work is a satire on the church, that it achieves a perfect harmony between form and content, that it expresses a horrifying vision of a future dystopia, and so on, without actually appreciating it. You can be very well informed about it without appreciating it. Rather, to appreciate a work, one thing that's necessary is that you be aware of the work's features by appropriate means. Usually, of course, this is some sort of perceptual acquaintance. 
So seeing, looking at, watching, listening to, and hearing are paradigmatic examples of appropriate means of awareness of a work's feature. Now, I'm not assuming here that the only appropriate form of awareness in this sense is perceptual. So perhaps we might want to say that the symphonies or the musical works composed by Beethoven whilst he was deaf uh, were ones that he was able better to appreciate by imagining hearing them performed. Or again, you might think that uh, being able to imagine certain works of conceptual art, for instance, might enable you to appreciate them if you are able to imagine them accurately enough. Nor again do I assume that the appropriate means of awareness of a work's features is always a matter of acquaintance with the work itself. So it seems perfectly plausible to suppose that if you see a good enough reproduction of a painting, then uh, you can appreciate that painting. So this formulation of appropriate awareness is meant to be open about what counts as appropriate awareness. Often, but maybe not always, this will be perceptual. That's one thing about appreciation. The other, the next thing is that appreciation is or involves a kind of engagement with a work. So I think that we can say that appreciation involves responding in various ways to a work. More specifically, I think we can say that for various parts and features of a work and <clears throat> represented persons, items, and events, if it's a representational work, there are various responses to them that appreciation of the work can involve. Simple example, appreciating Oedipus Rex can involve pitying Oedipus, assuming for the moment that pity is a response we can have to fictional characters. But appreciating it, probably at least, cannot involve being amused at his fate. This, it seems, is not an appropriate response, uh, or at least not a response that appreciation can involve. I'm going to use the term appropriate response as a shorthand for a response that appreciation of a work can involve. Now, when I talk about responses that appreciation can involve, I don't mean to imply that any response appreciation can involve is a response that appreciation must involve. So uh, for many works, there may be many responses that you didn't have, but nevertheless, you may count as having appreciated the work, even if you don't have them. Again, I don't assume that every feature or part or represented element of the work is one for which there is an appropriate response. So a painting's being 8.51 inches high is probably not a property that there will be an appropriate response to. I think we can distinguish if, uh, among appropriate responses, five different kinds. These are not meant to be mutually exclusive. So, 
One kind of response that I think appreciation can involve is perceptual responses. So appreciating a jade carving, for instance, can involve looking at the smoothness of the surface, looking at the translucence of the stone or the intricate patterns carved into it, and so on. If we perceive aesthetic properties, such as exquisiteness, fineness, grace, and elegance, then appreciation can surely also involve uh, perceiving aesthetic properties. This, I think, should be fairly uncontroversial. Secondly, appreciation can involve cognitive responses of various kinds. Acquiring or confirming the knowledge that something is the case is often if not always, a kind of response that appreciation of a work can involve. So, for instance, appreciating the wasteland can involve recognizing many of the lines one reads as allusions to certain other works, or appreciating versions of well-known stories such as Shakespeare's history plays, or the Greek tragedian's versions of Greek myths, can involve noticing how they change, add to, or emphasize certain aspects of the traditional story. Cognitive responses, again, I think, are one that clearly can be involved in appreciating a work. I think it's also worth distinguishing from cognitive responses, though, what I'll describe as cogitative responses. So responses of thinking, having certain thoughts, or imagining would fall under the umbrella of cogitative responses. So an appropriate response to a descriptive passage in a written work or an evocative piece of music may be to imagine what is described or evoked. Similarly, it is also sometimes said that when reading a play, one should try to imagine seeing it staged. All of these, it seems, can be responses that appreciation can involve. Fourth kind emotional or affective responses. So one might appreciate a jewel by delighting in its sheen or in its colors. One might appreciate the Alhambra uh, in part by being awestruck by it. Or cringing at a poorly played piece of music. Negative responses can be involved in appreciating, for instance, just how bad something is. The last kind of response that I'd like to distinguish is what I'm going to call conative responses. So these are responses that involve desires or the disposition to continue experiencing the work or not to continue experiencing the work. So appreciation of a story might involve being engrossed by it. Appreciating a portrait might involve taking an interest in the expression on the face of a sitter in the portrait. One could appreciate a fountain, in part by being fascinated by the movements of the water. All of these responses may be partly affective or emotional, but it seems worth distinguishing them on their own. These responses involve desiring or being disposed to continue experiencing the object. And for that reason, I choose the term conative, which uh, has a meaning, meaning pertaining to the faculty of desire. So, 
Two more clarifications I think are worth making about the responses appreciation can involve. I don't know if I mentioned, uh, but I also don't mean to imply here that having any one of these responses is sufficient to account uh, to count as appreciating the work. So when I talk about a response appreciation can involve, I don't mean to suggest that by having one of them, you would count as having appreciated the work. Nor again uh, do I mean to suggest that appreciating a work can only involve responses you have to it while you're aware of the work by appropriate means. So for instance, your appreciation of a film can often be deepened by discussing it with your friends after watching it. It seems that by thinking of it and reflecting on it afterwards, you can appreciate it better than you could while actually watching it. Okay, the last part aspect of appreciation I want to distinguish is what I'm going to call appropriate reasons. So often it's not just true that appreciation can involve having a certain response. It's also true that appreciation can involve having that response for a certain reason. So to return to the earlier example, appreciation of Oedipus Rex can involve pitying Oedipus for certain reasons, but can't involve, plausibly, pitying him for certain other reasons. Or perhaps it can't involve pitying Oedipus for no reason at all. I'm going to call the, these reasons appropriate reasons to indicate that appreciation can involve responding for these reasons. Now, I don't assume either that if appreciation involves responding in a certain way, it always involves responding in that way for a certain reason. So, uh, for instance, appreciation may involve admiring something's beauty, but it may not involve admiring the thing's beauty for a certain reason. Aesthetic properties seem to provide an interesting example of things that can be admired simply for themselves, and not where that means not for a particular reason, and that appreciation can involve admiring them, but not admiring them for a particular reason. Okay, so I think if at least this much is true about appreciation, then this gives us the materials with which to provide an account of a constitutive aim of criticism that avoids the counterexamples that I mentioned to the other accounts and accommodates the truth in the other accounts. So as I've set it out there on the handout, the view I defend is that a constitutive aim of criticism is to communicate to the reader what appreciation can involve responding to, or what responses appreciation can involve, or what appropriate reasons for these responses there are. This is a disjunctive aim it's a fact of one of these kinds about appreciation that the critic aims to communicate. Moreover, I stress the word communicate here 
The critic doesn't need to explicitly say or state that, for instance, such and such a feature is something that appreciation can involve responding to. Often, in fact, critics describe a work without saying something to that effect. But if it's a piece of criticism, it's understood that the point of describing the work is to indicate features that, for example, appreciation can involve responding to. So, as I say, I think this view is uh, broad enough to accommodate the truth in the other views and to avoid the counterexamples to them. So let's take evaluation. So there are a number of reasons why critics evaluate, why evaluating a work and providing support for it can achieve the aim of criticism I have identified. So critics might tell us what is good or bad about a work because appreciation can involve responding in a certain way to, to what is good or bad about it. Again, they might tell us that a work or an aspect of it has a certain value because the fact that it has that value can be an appropriate reason to respond to it in a certain way. And again, there may even be other ways in which evaluation can achieve the aim of criticism that I've identified. But I don't mean to imply, and my, my statement of the aim doesn't imply, that critis, critics can only achieve this aim that I've identified by evaluating or by providing support for an evaluation. Let's consider explanation. Often, appreciating a work can involve grasping the truth of an interpretation or of an explanation. So it can involve seeing that P because Q, seeing that the painting has a certain unity of tone because it has that concentration of blues and grays, and so on. Explanations might also themselves be appropriate reasons for responses that appreciation can involve. Suppose a critic of architecture explains how an architect managed to balance aesthetic and functional considerations in a certain work. Appreciating that architect's work might well involve admiring it because aesthetic and functional considerations are balanced in that way that was described by the critic. Let's move on to aiding appreciation. If a constitutive aim of criticism is to communicate facts of these kinds about appreciation, this can be done for any number of purposes. One reason you might communicate these facts about appreciation is to aid appreciation, to enable the reader to appreciate it better than they otherwise could. Indeed, one might communicate facts of this kind for many reasons. One might uh, for instance, point out what qualities are of aesthetic interest in a work in order to establish its date or its author. But certainly one important reason why critics communicate these facts about appreciation is to aid appreciation. But again, this is not the only reason why one might do so. So it might be interesting to know these facts about appreciation of a work, to know what there was to admire in it or to take an interest in, in the play, for instance, even if you can no longer 
admire the play or take an interest in it yourself. Similarly, uh, a reason why you might communicate this is to help the reader to choose what works to experience. And lastly, in terms of guiding perception, I think we can fit this into the framework that we've already established. One reason why critics might guide appreciation is if their aim is to aid, that, sorry, one reason why they guide perception is if their aim is to aid appreciation. Perhaps also another reason is to aid communication of these kinds of facts, to show the reader what they mean, to show them, to get them to see what appreciation of the work can involve. So I think this is one thing that counts in favor of this view. It captures, or has the resources with which to capture what is right about the rival views while avoiding the counterexample. It also explains what I'm going to call the acquaintance requirement on criticism. So it's a striking fact about criticism that someone who criticizes a work represents herself as having been aware of that work's features by some means that are needed in order to appreciate it. So to make that a bit more concrete, someone who criticizes a work of literature implies that she has read it or heard it read. Someone who criticizes a painting or sculpture implies that she has seen it or a suitable reproduction or representation of it. Indeed, if, say, a film critic had not actually seen the films that she reviewed, then she would be guilty of a kind of dishonesty. She might even lose her job. And this would be so even if everything she said about the film was true, and even if she had excellent reasons for believing it to be true. It seems that uh, this is a striking fact about criticism. You imply, by criticizing a work, that you have been aware of its features by some means needed in order to appreciate it whether having watched it, listened to it, seen it, what have you. Now, if I'm right about what the constitutive aim of criticism is, this requirement, which as I say I call the acquaintance requirement, can be explained. So if criticism aims to tell us these facts about appreciation, then what she says about such matters has a distinctive authority if it is based on awareness of the work's features by some means required to appreciate it. It's perfectly intelligible that we would require critics to be acquainted with the work in one of these ways if the aim of criticism is to do what I've suggested. The last thing I think that this view enables us to explain is how criticism differs from many other related forms of discourse about art. So in Carroll's book on criticism, he writes that the challenge that confronts the skeptic regarding the claim that a criticism is essentially concerned with evaluation is to propose a more effective and more persuasive dividing line between criticism and comparable modes of discourse about art. Comparable modes of discourse about art include such things as art history. I think Carol mentions the example of cultural criticism. And we can think of others. So footnotes in a text of Shakespeare that give the meanings of archaic words, 
may or may not be arch-critical remarks or literary critical remarks. I think my account enables us to explain how criticism is different from many of these other forms of discourse about art. So footnotes in the text of Shakespeare that give the meaning of unfamiliar words uh, are not necessarily critical remarks because they don't necessarily give us to understand or communicate that these words are to be responded to appreciatively or that their meanings are to be responded to appreciatively. Again, another difference between criticism and other forms of discourse about art that my account highlights and can explain is that criticism is subject to the acquaintance requirement and other forms are not. Not all other forms are. So, for instance, art history is not subject to the acquaintance requirement. Perfectly legitimate to write art history about ancient Greek paintings that have been lost and which have no suitable reproductions or copies existing, but you cannot legitimately write criticism about such works anymore. Criticism is subject to the acquaintance requirement. Art history is not. Once again, my account, I think, enables us to explain this. So, to conclude, there is no reason, as I stated, to assume in advance that there's a single aim shared by all criticism, or that there's a constitutive aim of criticism. If my talk here has been successful, however, I hope to have persuaded you that, as a matter of fact, this is the case. There is a constitutive aim shared by all criticism of the arts. Thank you very much.